If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit uh, will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you in my own hand. Those who want to make good, a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Great work, Steve. Thank you. Well, uh, you're welcome to keep that uh, Galatians passage open. Um, Galatians 6 will be um, referring to that uh, as we move into a time of, um, of preaching. I can do it by myself, he said. I can do it by myself. Over the noise of the airport terminal, I heard him saying it. Four-year-old boy, resolutely trying to tie his shoelaces while the queue waited to board the plane. He'd never been able to tie them before, but today was the day he was going to be sure he could do it by himself. The family was holding up the line. He was holding up his family. His mother was bending over him, trying to do it. But each time he was batting her hands away, I can do it by myself. He should have been obedient, but rather he swatted her away each time she tried to help. I can do it by myself is something we've been trying to say ever since before we could speak. I don't know about you, but my kindergarten class had a shoelace tying certificate because we wanted to be proud of being able to do it by ourselves. And we've been chasing those merit certificates of one kind or another ever since. Uh, the HSC, the diploma, the house, the second car, all a way of, of showing that we can do it by ourselves. 
Being an independent individual is very important in our culture. We're taught from a very young age that the goal is to be able to say, I can do it by myself. But that quest for self-sufficiency often means that we swat people away when they try to help. And that's a problem. The do-it-by-myself culture includes with it an anti-interference clause, uh, now marked by sayings we have like, oh, each to their own, it's your life, whatever makes you happy, or uh, in the, the common current vernacular, you do you. It's different in God's family, though. At least it should be. Because we share each other's burdens. And today, Paul is showing us how. From verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The first investment that Paul points to is explaining and exposing someone's sin. Now, this someone, he doesn't specifically say who this someone is, but in the context it's appropriate to see that he's talking about people in church with you. If you see someone caught in a sin, your task is to help them come back from that. As I speak, I realise this is an uncomfortable thought because, as I said, we've been conditioned to think that individual achievement is our best investment. But you are part of a family, God's family. And we're in this together. You can no longer say each to their own when we're talking about sin. You can no longer say you do you, when you see someone engage in anger, gossip, slander, addiction. Because if someone is in a habitual, continual sin, they're no longer able to help themselves. They need your help. Paul goes further, pointing out sin is not cruel. It's not being a busybody. It's actually loving. See verse 2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the one he pointed to back in a previous chapter. Actually chapter 5 verse 14, on the same page, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love your neighbour. Restoring someone from sin is loving. But how? How could that be loving, pointing out someone's faults? First, it's, it's loving to help someone who's struggling. We went on holidays just last week and it was nice to share the baggage so that no one had to carry too much. Or if someone was struggling, we could help with the bags if we're happy to help people with luggage so that they don't struggle, how much more should we be happy to help people with their sin? If you see a brother or sister burdened with sin, you might be just the person to assist them in their struggle. 
And if you consider yourself to be generally a helpful person, well, this is a way that you can help too. Exposing sin is also loving because it's also helping the whole body, God's people. God calls us to live in community and to serve each other in love. This community is elsewhere described as a body, a house. If you had gangrene in your toe, would you say, each to your own little toe? We know the demise of the toe is a threat to the whole body. And in a house, we don't ignore the termites in one wall because uh, that wall just needs some space and prayer and they can do it by themselves. No, we know that the threat to one wall is a threat to the whole house. And in the house of God, when we see sin, we renovate, we deal with it. Because we attest to the gospel principle that a Christian is not living for themselves anymore, but living for God's kingdom. Ignoring sin is inconsistent with your calling into God's family. So whose job is it to restore sin? I'm not just talking to elders. Hello to the elders among us. But it's not just your job. If you are a member of God's family, it's your job. Perhaps you feel like you aren't worthy of bringing correction to a brother or sister. But what Paul is saying here is that it's nothing to do with your own worthiness. Because living in the spirit now means serving each other. You who are spiritual should restore them. But Paul's quick to point out that correcting someone and exposing sin may have its own danger, its own risks. Watch yourself, he says in verse 1, or you may also be tempted. Paul could be talking about that danger of falling into the same problem that you're trying to correct, like when you're trying to correct someone for their foul language and then you find that you're just as bad. But actually, I think here he's more likely talking about the danger of pride. Listen to how Paul goes on to warn those about feeling superior. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. We must avoid the temptation to think that we're something when we're not. We are to correct sin in others, but we are not to feel superior to them. Our test is not how we compare to others who have fallen. Our test is how we meet God's standard. We could take pride in that if we found ourselves to be perfect, but more likely we'll quickly, quickly realise that we need help too. We all need help but we're in community, we're in a family, and so we help each other. When Paul says each one should carry his own load, he means there are no freeloaders in God's kingdom because we are now doing our bit to serve one another 
in love. Serving each other is how we play our part in God's family. And Paul makes a special mention here of investing in people who've given up other paid work to teach the gospel. Verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Some people have given up a wage to devote their time to preaching, to teaching, to studying and applying the word. They are worth more than just our scraps. Think about Scott. He devotes his life to serving God by looking after and instructing the flock that God has given him. Your service to God should include facilitating Scott's service through your respect, through your prayer, and through your financial contributions. In fact, it's not the only time that Paul talks specifically about contributing financially and otherwise to the work of instructors. In the first letter to Timothy, Paul says, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading the grain. Uh, actually, yes, he's comparing teachers to oxen, which is an interesting word picture when I think about Scott. But more importantly, what Paul is saying is that we can't do it all by ourselves. We have to help each other by sharing the blessings that we've been given. Some provide instruction, others provide money, we all provide prayer, some provide all three, but each one carries some load in God's kingdom. I remember as a child we had a weekly trip down Epping Road and I used to pass a nursery that had a big sign out the front that said, Lemonade Trees Here. I was too young to um, have much gardening experience and I thought about these lemonade trees and how great it would be to have a lemonade tree in my yard so any time I could just go crack off the can and I could have lemonade. Uh, I struggled with the concept because I thought those things were made in a factory but uh, of course I know now that lemonade trees are a particular type of lemon, sweeter, less acidic, Really, I should have known that if you sow a lemon seed or plant a lemon seedling, you're going to get some sort of lemon, not our aluminium cans as a fruit. You reap what you sow. Reaping what you sow is a prevalent theme through the Bible. Uh, it's also included in our passage here. Why don't you have a look from verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers." What's so compelling about this crop harvesting analogy? Put simply, we can all understand it. The proof is evident. You don't have to be a crop scientist to know that if you sow oats, you'll get oats. If you sow lemons, don't 
expect to produce a crop of aluminium cans. It doesn't work that way. You might be able to fool yourself in this area, but God is no fool. He cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. Just like the lemonade tree, in our spiritual life, you can't expect a spiritual benefit if you spend all your time pleasing the sinful nature. In fact, verse 8 says, sowing to please the sinful nature will reap destruction. The question for us is, just who are we trying to fool? The big issue for God's people, I think, here in Australia is what I call the comfortable rut. You know the one. You're happy that you've been saved. But in your actions, you're now investing in your own comfort. You can't remember the last time you considered what would please the spirit in this situation because instead your life has become one distraction after another. Chasing one of the big four pleasures, as one of my college lecturers puts it, weekends, holidays, sex and chocolate. I've just come back from a holiday, so I'm not against holidays. I'm not saying we should not take holidays. I'm not against any of the big four, actually. But if your whole life is devoted to chasing your next hit of weekends, holidays, sex and chocolate, it's likely you've stopped sowing to please the spirit. And instead, you're in the comfortable rut, chasing your own comfort. Let me warn you, that comfort turns out to be temporary and destructive to the church. We don't delve into the book of Haggai much, but one of its themes is a warning against the chasing of comfort. Listen to Haggai chapter 1, verse 9. You expected your work would amount to much, but it amounted to little. When you brought your harvest home, I ruined it. Why? This is what the Lord Almighty says. It's because my house lies in ruins while each of you is busy fixing up your own. When we cease investing in God's kingdom, when we cease investing in God's house, we'd be fools to expect a spiritual harvest. When we sow to please our own sinful nature and only chase our own comfort, we reap only destruction because a day is coming when God is going to shake down everything that we've done. When God will shake the heavens and the earth and that's the day we'll see our investments for what they really are. And if they're sowing to please the sinful nature, if they're earthly, then they'll crumble. On that day when Jesus returns as judge and king, Buildings will fall, jobs will end, holiday plans will dissolve, and retirement won't even be a thing. But if you're investing in the fruit of the Spirit, that day will bring hope for us as well. Because that's when we'll see our spiritual harvest for what it is. We'll see our investment in the gospel pay off 
possibly for the first time. As every tear is wiped away, every knee bows and every tongue confesses in the name of the Lord. God will appraise our spiritual investment, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've got a shot, even today, at sowing for a harvest that will last for eternity. Why would you chase anything else? So now we chase an eternal harvest, even if that means foregoing some earthly comfort. It's a matter of delayed gratification. It's like the Queen of Sheba orchid. Do you know that flower? The Queen of Sheba orchid takes 10 years of cultivation to produce its first flower. Imagine planting, watering and maintaining that plant for 10 years before you saw any benefit. It can feel like that when you're sowing to please the spirit. We might pray for years without seeing an answer. We might take time to explain the gospel a thousand times before we see any benefit, if at all. We might forego that house extension and fund mission work instead uh, without seeing any obvious return on that investment. But these investments have eternal significance. The harvest will come one day, and what a great harvest it will be for God's kingdom. Coming back to the passage, that's why Paul encourages the Galatians in verse 9 not to get tired, not to give up doing good for all people. Delayed gratification can be tiring. But if God has called us out of our sin and into his eternal kingdom then investing in his kingdom will be the only thing that lasts for eternity. Parents, that means invest in your kids' spiritual development. Take time to read the Bible and do devotions and prayers with them because now is the time to invest. Retirees, that means weigh up the merits of what you're spending your time on now because Unlike the parents raising children, you have more time than you've ever had before. What are you going to invest it in? They're just two examples. But in fact, all of us, regardless of our life circumstance, must be investing in the kingdom. Praying, witnessing, donating, sowing for our spiritual harvest that will come. That will come at the last day. I wonder if uh, you've had a chance to look at some of the great work that our kids do in uh, our Sunday program, uh, the craft and the, the colouring that they do. They often write their names. You've seen how big those names are when they write, how big those words are. In fact, often takes more of the page than the colouring in they've done. The letters are big and Paul's handwriting, it turns out, is big and a bit ugly too. It seems it was nothing to boast about. Authors like Paul employed a scribe to write neatly for them and multiple copies. The original document would have had the scribe's neat writing through the letter to Galatians up to this point and now Paul starts writing 
with the gnarled hands of an old tradesman. But Paul, ever the teacher, is about to illustrate using his writing to show again his main point through the letter. Outward appearance is nothing to brag about. From verse 11, let's have a look. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. Paul's big, ugly handwriting further demonstrates that he cares nothing about outward appearances. And that's what he's been saying all through this book, battling his critics who think that there should be an external show for the Galatians, namely circumcision. But if it's just a matter of cutting skin, then it's only skin deep. It's only like an individual certificate of achievement and an outward show at best. But for Paul, individual achievement and outward shows are nothing to boast about. Rather, Jesus Christ is the achiever. And that's why he says from verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Boasting in the flesh and in outward appearance, we've all done that one time or another. We've all felt that we should be afforded special treatment because we look a certain way, because we speak a certain way, because we dress a certain way, because we act in a certain way. That's boasting in the flesh. It's saying... I can do it by myself. That's what the circumcision party felt. That circumcision should be counted worthy of a reward from God for your individual achievement. There are other outward shows of achievement too for the Pharisees. Their flowing robes and their loud prayers were hypocrisy merely for show. But on the contrary, boasting in the cross of Christ requires openly admitting that we can't do it by ourselves. That we need help. By placing our trust in Jesus, in his death on the cross, we trust his achievement, not our own. The people who trust in Christ, well, it's these people, Paul says, who are God's chosen people. In verse 16 there, he uses the name of Israel. The name of Israel was associated with circumcision, with hand washing. But now Paul says the true Israel are not the ones that have merely outward show. The true Israel, God's chosen people, are not those who put on a show, but those who are clean on the inside. Those who trust in Jesus Christ to wash and renew and restore them through his death on the cross. So now it's no longer a matter of 
I did it by myself. In Paul's day, people were tempted to chase individual achievement and outward show. Doesn't that still happen today? What merit certificate might you be chasing still? It's probably not the shoelace tying certificate. But it might be something else. Well, okay, surely God wouldn't be swayed by the fact I have a university degree, by the fact I have a job or a big house. God's no fool. But maybe I'm still investing in outward show, in outward appearance, trying to look like I have it all together, even in front of my church family, trying to hide the sin that I'm clinging to inside. Maybe you're chasing a name for yourself, a name which will be forgotten in a few decades' time. Maybe you're chasing one of those big four distractions of holidays, weekends, sex or chocolate, chasing your own comfort. What are you investing in today, this week? If you're chasing those distractions and the outward show, your investment won't last. It'll be shown to be destruction when all is revealed at the last day. But Christ has set us free, free to serve each other in love, free to invest in his family, in his kingdom, in his people. And so when you invest in that, it's those things that you will find reap a harvest that lasts for eternity. May we reap a harvest that lasts for eternity and begin our investment today. Let's pray. Father, you are not mocked. Lord, you will show our investments for what they are. Lord, I pray that we may have courage to give up the instant gratification and to choose to sow to please the Spirit, not our own comfort. And in so doing, reap a harvest that lasts for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.